everybody, it's Robert Gowan. Welcome to Mentors for Mail. And uh, we're sitting here at Pearl and Pine Brewery. Appreciate these guys in Sonoya, Georgia, for allowing us to, to come here and tape this episode. And I'm joined by my co-host. How are you guys doing? It's Kyle. So we're here with someone that has been here on this show before. And uh, it was back episode 3... 312. 312. And on uh, 312, Larry Freeland um, came and talked about his book, uh, where it was a Huey pilot, pilot from Vietnam. And uh, so we're joined once again on this episode uh, with Larry back in studio. So thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you fellas this morning and chat a little bit about books and Veterans Day and all of my family. Yeah, excellent. Glad to have you. I'm glad you uh, brought that up, Larry. We wanted to I wanted to kind of give an overview uh, from the author's own words, um, kind of explain what you what you had out, and then what's coming next, and and what we got. Okay, well, glad to. My first book uh, was titled Chariots in the Sky, and it was loosely based on my personal experiences in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot with the 101st. That came out about two years ago, and it's done quite well. It's a historical fiction, but it's based in fact. Uh, except for the characters. There are composites. Uh, the main character is uh, Captain Taylor St. James, and I built him to kind of be the epitome of a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. I wanted to tell that story from a helicopter pilot standpoint and the air crews that served in Vietnam, but not make it an autobiography or a biography. I wanted whoever read it to uh, kind of get into the head of the main character, TJ, Experience what he experienced, uh, feel, feel all the fear, feel the anxiety, feel the pride, the courage, the being scared, uh, what it's like to fly in and out of hot, hot LZs, and, and then uh, just do other missions. Uh, flying helicopters in Vietnam was quite challenging. A lot of people think it's just combat. Well, that's one, but weather over there was a real factor. Uh, and there was mechanical issues on helicopters. They require a lot of maintenance and, uh, of course, uh, human error. So any one of those could ruin your day, but when you get them in a combination, it's a really bad day. But I wanted to capture all that and, and let the reader uh, at some point in the book become TJ and experience what he did and his crew people and the men that uh, served together as aviators over there. And uh, myself, I was, in, in actuality, I was a CH-47 pilot. Uh, the big guys, the twin, en twin engines and dual uh, front and back blades. They still use those in the inventory. Of course, they're big in uh, Afghanistan, or they were in, in Iraq. But uh, put that out, and, and uh, done real well, and I enjoyed uh, writing that. And uh, then I was uh, at the completion of that book. I was a little surprised by how well it did. My publisher said, well, yeah, it's a pretty good book there, Larry. You got any other ideas? And um, I said, yeah, I've been thinking a little bit, because when, yeah, when we signed the contract to do the first book, I was told if... If it did well, your publisher's going to want to have you write some more books uh, and see where they go. So I gave it a little thought, and I said, well, I got this idea about maybe writing a trilogy of one family's three generations of men serving in our conflicts, starting with World War I and flowing through our current uh, conflicts, if you will. And he said, well, that sounds like a good idea, Larry. Why don't you uh, write it up, and let's talk about it and see where we go, which I did. And he gets back to me and says, this is good. Let's, uh, let's sign a contract. We signed a three-book contract and uh, he said, get to work. So <laughs> <laughs> I went down, sat down, and started writing manuscript one for the book one. And the trilogy is called Legacy of Honor. And the first book is The Patriarch, and it's set in World War I. 
post-World War One, and it's loosely based on my grandfather, who was a doughboy, an infantryman in, in uh, France, as they called him back then. And then book two is uh, on, is basically uh, starts with World War Two, Korea, early part of the Cold War, and it's loosely based on my father, who had a 30-year career in the Air Force. In World War II, when he went in, it was the Army Air Corps, and he served with the 8th Air Force out of uh, England. And then when the war ended, he got out and, and tried to make it uh, in the civilian world, and he, he found that that wasn't really his cup of tea. He missed what he experienced in the military. So he went back in, uh, well, he was actually called back in before the Korean War, but ended up uh, going back in, and then he made a full career out of it. Uh, book three is loosely based on myself and my two other brothers. Uh, all of us served. And uh, I was in the Army for a while. My middle brother was a Navy pilot for 27-plus years, retired. And my younger brother was two years in the Army, did a stint on the DMZ in Korea while I was in Vietnam, came back, got out, and went into the uh, service with the government as an agent, special agent. And he never talked about what he did. I heard snippets, but uh, at 50, he was retired. Then uh, when 9-11 happened, he went uh, and volunteered to uh, join a uh, security firm. He had, had acquired quite a knowledge of uh, weapons and uh, misclosives and linguistics from uh, the African area. He'd been in and out of Africa a lot. So he went over there twice uh, to Iraq, 18 months each time, and then went to Afghanistan for 13 months and then got out. So book three will be loosely based on each of my brother's experiences. And I'm compiling that. I'm working on that one now. But that's kind of a nutshell of my family and the three books that, uh, well, the two books that are out, the third, uh, the third one, you know, my third one, which is book two in the trilogy, that'll be out at the end of August, working on book three, which sometime late next summer. Uh, we didn't grow up in uh, being uh, uh, kind of channeled to go into the military, but uh, we all ended up doing it at some point, but, and only one really made that a career of the three of us. Uh, but anyway, I think yeah. that happens. But it's still your, your ability as a generation to put your impact on your military service for your family. It is um, your, your way to carry on. And it may not, it may not even be uh, at a conscious level. It could be at a subconscious level. But it's something that even after I got out, I still look back and I'm glad I did it. Yeah. You know, and, it's, and I think that's important for um, you know, people that might be thinking about it. You're, you're never going to regret doing it, I don't think, if... If, if, especially if you have a family connection and hi your history says this, this, and this. It's, to me, it, it, was, it, was, it was difficult at times, but it was, I knew I was in the right place when I was doing it. I, I agree with that. I, uh, <clears throat> I was in the service five years, and we can come back to how it all happened in my career at some point later on if you like. But when I got out, I went into banking. I decided I wanted to do that, and I was 18 months in a training program with Trust Company in Atlanta. Very good to me, and I had a good career with them, but those first 18 months were rough because, uh, you know, I've been a captain in, the, in assault combat and commanded guys and a lot of experiences. And here I am learning how to count cash and learning how to run a proof machine, interacting on the teller one, learning all the basics of banking. That was a little tough to deal with. And of course, the salary got cut in half, and then you had the, I would, Vietnam veterans in general sometimes were not really well treated. Uh, basically ignored to some extent. And uh, here I was competing with fellows that had been, in, and mostly men back in those days. It was in the mid-70s. 
uh, had been in their careers already three, four, five years while I'd been serving, uh, but got out, adjusted, and moved forward. But as I got older and I reflect back, one of the main things I've missed, uh, even though I was in only in five years, was the, the uh, professionalism, the comradeship, the uh, spirit of corps, uh, the sense of purpose, uh, and those things that make a military unit what it should be. Uh, and I never really found that in the civilian careers that I've had. And I had a very successful, in my opinion, banking career for 20, 28 and a half years. Did consulting in Atlanta for three financial and then taught college for seven years. I enjoyed all of them, but I uh, never really saw that same sense that I experienced in only five years. And uh, my dad was 30, and I remember him talking about it a lot. And then my brother in the Navy, same thing. Those, those Navy pilots, they were a special breed. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they were always fun to be around. You know, yeah. Army pilot, get out of here. You know. <laughs> yeah, I think that camaraderie, though, is like one of the things that people miss the most, right? Because you're kind of slammed into this awkward situation with people you don't know. So you're developing relationships on a different level at that point. Absolutely. And that's what guys... We hear a lot from guys that is what they're missing is is that sense of camaraderie, that sense of team, that sense of something larger than self that you may not get from just a, a civilian job or something out there on the market now. I agree 100%. You meet a lot of people coming from different parts of the country, and you get a lot of different perspectives. And after you go through your basic and advanced training, you're kind of gelled together as a unit. And at some point, it, it, it uh, will impress upon you that, hey, we are a unit. We're all trained to do something, and we need to do it together if we're going to come out the other end in one piece. Uh, so that's, it's important. Your grandfather, having served in World War One, and maybe you can kind of, after studying not only his background and the history of World War One, talk a little bit more about that war and about the the troubles of that war and and why it was so different you gained so much insight also as a young child and having uh, to actually get a chance to grow up with a generation that served in world war one yeah in some respects i'm very fortunate in that uh, regard uh, grew up in a military family with my dad being in the service but in my younger days, uh, my dad traveled a lot, travels the wrong word. He was assigned a lot on uh, unaccompanied tours. And we were, uh, I don't think my dad would come home and leave at the house for any period of time until I got into the sixth grade. <laughs> he was always coming and going. So we were spending a lot of time around my grandparents. Uh, and uh, dad was born and raised in Louisville, Ohio, outside of Canton, Ohio. Uh, both my grandparents, his parents, uh, were basically from that area. And when uh, Dad would be deployed uh, to go different places, he would put us next to my, his parents there in Louisville. And the one I have the most uh, re remembrance of, and I've uh, covered it in my book a little bit, was uh, in the fifth grade. He was gone, Dad was going 13 months to Greenland unaccompanied, and we lived next door to my grandparents. And uh, Granddad was a big man. Uh, about 6'4", he looked built like a lumberjack, and he was just a good guy, and everybody, he was like one of the pillars, maybe the wrong word, but he was, he was well-liked in the community, it was a small community. And there were a lot of fellows that lived there that had served in World War I, and of course then the, uh, World War II too, because at that point it was uh, post-Korea War, Korean War, but then when we were living there. Uh, and he, uh, he would take me with him a lot of times, to his monthly Saturday night poker game. 
down uh, in downtown, which was only a couple blocks from his house, not a big town. And they had a rec room, a recreation room on the second floor of the courthouse. First floor had the police station, fire station, the mayor's office. Second floor had records and a big recreation room. And there was about nine or ten of these fellows, and they had all served in World War One. I. I don't know if they served together, but uh, they loved to play poker and drink a little bit and smoke their pipes. Seemed like most everybody that in World War One smoked pipes. They started mm-hmm. to go to cigarettes, but they smoked pipes. And uh, he would take me with him most of the time, and uh, we I'd go down there with him and be after dinner, and and they would talk, and then they'd sit down and start playing poker around this big round table. And I'd be pacing around watching them and eating their food and drinking some Cokes. And they had a little television over in the corner and watch that till I got tired. And, and uh, then I'd just crawl up on the couch and fall asleep. Uh, and, over, and I'd done this many times over the 12 months there, probably seven, eight times, I'm not sure. But these fellows got to know me and, they, and, and we got along well. And anyway, most of the time it'd be two, three, four o'clock in the morning. I would wait, be woken up, not, not just roll over kind of like, and uh, I don't think they ever saw me do this, but I could hear them talking, and uh, this would be late into the morning, and they'd been drinking a little bit and smoking their pipes and playing cards, and they would start talking about uh, some of the shared experiences in World War One. and as a, as a boy in fifth grade, I really couldn't, you know, obviously relate to that, but uh, I did have a lot of respect for men that served. I grew up well, even only in the fifth grade, I'd already read books about World War I, uh, and I uh, would hear stories occasionally. But hearing some of the stuff they talked about as a little boy was, oh my gosh, you know, I couldn't relate to it. But uh, I, I say all that to say this, that when I wrote this first book, The Patriarch, I was able to draw on some of those stories, snippets from that I could recall, and embedded them in different parts of the book, uh, in, in uh, trench warfare and things like that. So, and then Granddad himself, uh, he never talked about the war to me. Uh, he never really talked about it, as far as I know. I got most of my information from some of his friends, from my dad who knew a little bit. <clears throat> and these are funny. Granddad did tell me two stories. He was a big storyteller. He could go into a bar, which he and I did when I was in college, because I'd go visit them. I can come up to that in a minute, but <laughs> he liked to drink, and I drank beer in college. So we'd go out on Saturday night and go to one of the bars in town where he li- lived at that time in middle Florida, and uh, he'd drink a little bit, I'd drink a little bit, and he'd be up there telling everybody how, how it was to ride the range and horses and everything about horses. He, he could talk about horses and, and, and riding, and the man never rode in his life. <laughs> But that's how good of a storyteller he was. And uh, I'd sit there, and I knew all the time, and they kind of look at me like, is he really telling the truth? And I'm like, oh, yeah. they buy him another <laughs> round, and I think he did it for the drinks. But uh, I might have picked some of my storytelling up from him in that regard. But uh, I'm not sure where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. So what are, uh, can you give us like a, kind of a snippet of what some of the stories were shared around that card table? Yeah, well, I'll, yeah, now I know, but I'll come back to Granddad real quick, uh, and I've embedded him in the book because they're funny, mm-hmm. and I heard him many times over the years. He one uh, he uh, went over on a troop ship, and he'd never been on a ship before. And when he came back after the war, he'd never been on a ship again. He says he just didn't like it. But on the way over, he his uh, he was with an Ohio comp- uh, battalion, I think it was, and in the ship they went over, there was a Texas unit too, bo- both of. The Ohio guys and the Texan guys were infantry. 
And uh, he would always say, you know, those Texans, he said, they love to fight, they love to play poker, and they love to drink. He said, and I loved every one of them. (laughs) 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 I kind of summed up granddad. Uh, And then the other story, and I've got a comment in my book about what I just said, but uh, the other story, which is always kind of funny to me, is, and I I built around uh, what they called the... uh, the, the, the best patrol ever, their favorite patrol or the best patrol ever. They were out practicing before they went back out on the line, his, his platoon of about 40 guys, and they were in that standard V formation. You got the point guy, and you're going across the big field, and they're scattered. Well, they're going across the French field behind enemy lines. It was just a, a routine practice afternoon. And the lead guy uh, f- just disappeared. So another guy that was next to him ran up. He disappeared. And a fellow, another fellow ran up, and he disappeared. And everybody drops down their knee, loads their weapons, and you know, what's going on here? And uh, anyway, uh, the squad, our platoon leader, worked his way up and looks down in a big hole, and these guys had fallen through the roof of a hidden wine cellar. <laughs> so uh, they confiscated quite a bit of wine from the cellar and took it back to their company and it became known as the greatest patrol, uh, greatest patrol ever. And I've got that in my book. So there's a little humor sometimes uh, that these fellows went through. Um, Isn't that funny about combat where sometimes it can be like the saddest part mm-hmm. of your life, but in a moment it could also be the happiest, funniest part of your life. Yeah. It's yeah. In, and, that's, and that's awesome when you reflect that because when people ask you know, was it scary? Yeah. But was it hilarious? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was that too. So, yeah, I, I, I got some comments from my first book, uh, Chariots, about from some reviewers saying, well, there's a little bit of humor in the book. I thought combat was non-humorous. And I said, well, have you been in combat before? And <laughs> what can you say? There's, you don't find humor in that, but you got to have humor in something just to relieve the stress. Absolutely. Uh, so it, it happens. Uh, let's see here. But the fellows, back to the uh, Saturday Night Poker games, a little bit of it. Uh, I remember just vaguely them talking about gas. I mean, I always thought gas would come down in an artillery shell, which it did, and it'd blow up and it'd be all over the place. Uh, but they also had these gas canisters that would explode above them in white, big white puffs, and they'd just float down over them and kind of rain down powder. Uh, and I remember them talking a little bit about that, hating that more than what was on the ground because it would settle on the ground and they could kind of stay out of the puddles. But if it was falling down on them like rain, it was very difficult to, well, it was impossible, I guess, for them to get away from it. And I remember them a little bit running through no man's land there and uh, talking about, you know, seeing their buddies drop and what do I do now and, and how, how do I help them? And they just have to keep going. Uh, some of the things I vaguely recalled and read in the book was uh, going across no man's land and being gassed. Uh, I always thought you know, the shells would drop into the ground and the gas would come up, which it did. But uh, I remember them talking a little bit about a cloudburst of gas and there'd be these big white puffs and it rained down on them. And they feared that more than the gas exploding on the ground. They just uh, had a harder time getting, couldn't get away from the exploding above them. But if it was on the ground, they could work their way around it sometimes a little bit. I remember a little bit about them talking about crossing no man's land and the feeling of being all alone and how they dreaded that. And they'd see guys fall and they just had to keep going until they heard the whistles if the, if the attack was called off. And uh, I remember one or two fellows always saying, I was just praying for the whistle to go back. Uh, so they didn't care for no man's land. And 
I don't recall them talking about the brutality of it. I learned some of that from other places, but their general fear was going out into no man's land, and they certainly didn't like the trenches. The trenches were pretty rough on them. Uh, and I did more research to ferret that out better, but trench, trench warfare was a key, key is the wrong word, but it was central to that World War I. Mm-hmm. And living in a trench uh, for the period of time they did was tantamount to living either near a, in a sewer or near a sewer. They were just filthy places. There was always water on the bottom. They'd put these wood racks so they'd try and stay above the water, but seldom did that really work. So trench foot was a constant problem for them. Um, uh, rats were everywhere and uh, just the stench. And when they did get gas, which was pretty routine, the gas would still get them embedded in the ground a little bit. And particularly a lot of the sound, sandbags that we were using would just get uh, kind of go into the bags, you know, and emanate out a little bit. So they never really got away from it completely, even though they might not have been shelled for a pretty good while. Uh, <clears throat> And then the trenches themselves, they didn't live up there indefinitely. They would rotate units in and out. They'd be on the trench line a certain period of time, bring them back, let them rest a little bit, and then they put them back out there. Uh, and there was times when they knew if the enemy was going to be coming or a major offensive was in the works from the German side, and they would live in fear if they were in the back being called back up to the front, so to speak. So there was always, if even if you're in the back, they, they knew that they were going to go up again, and they just uh, lived in fear of that. Of course, if we, anyone that served can, can relate to that. You know, you go into combat, and you come back, and you go, I don't ever want to do it again, or I don't want to go back up, or whatever, and then knowing you're going to have to do it again. Um, <clears throat> the food generally was not bad for them back when they were off the main lines or off the main trenches, but in the trench line, it was pretty poor if it was... Uh, basically not good <laughs> water yeah. was scarce and it was uh not uh, not purified well uh the food would be cold if it got up there and uh they we had some rations i don't remember all the type of rations they got but they didn't care for the food on the line they didn't they did enjoy it when they were way back in the uh, back bases uh, they fed pretty well in the uh mess halls back uh, off the line which they looked forward to so i just remember a lot of those different things in the mud oh my gosh the mud that's constant mud they wear these big com- well i call them combat boots they had a name for them uh, persian boots and they came up almost to their knees and they would be times when they would be almost the mud would be almost up to that when they were just walking it was always it seemed like it was always wet over there uh, from what they talked about so um so I read a lot of those, some of that stuff, and embedded that in the book. I did a lot of research on World War One. I'd read some books about World War One, seen some documentaries about World War One, so I could draw on a lot of that too. Um, Granddad, uh, he was in uh, the what they called the uh, Rainbow Division, which is interesting, and he was part of the American Expeditionary Force, which was all the Americans. Towards the end of the war, they, they'd had the first army was the one they formed. And then towards the end of the war, they brought in another army. So they had two armies over there. And I'll come back to that. But he was in one of the early groups to go over when the war started, or when we declared war on Germany in uh, 1970, I think it was April or May. Uh, every, uh, the country in general was split, but it seemed like there was a real war fever, for lack of a better word, to go over and help the British and the and the French and the Belgians uh, against the Germans. And uh, so after we declared war in Germany, 
they wanted to send over a unit quick, a division, an infantry division, as quick as they could. But the active army only had a couple hundred thousand men, and they didn't have what they felt was ready to go. But the National Guards, which we recall across the country, had uh, major uh, divisions and, and, and a lot of men in them compared to the active duty uh, force. And so they decided to send over uh, a National Guard because they thought they were more ready at that point. And uh, then the problem became, uh, well, which one do we send? Because a lot of the divisions wanted to go, actually, from the different states, over 20 of them. And they were afraid that if they just picked one state and sent that over, some of the other states would be upset, and it may not be good for trying to build up a national fervor for supporting the war and, and building up to do what they needed to do. So they decided to pull from different National Guard units from across the country. And they ended up pulling about 23 or 24 different National Guard units and tapped different entities within the divisions of those National Guard divisions and formed a one division which they sent over. And they, they called it the Rainbow Division because it came from all across the country. And at the time, the person that came up with that concept was a major, Major MacArthur, General MacArthur, well, General Major Douglas MacArthur. He came up with that idea. He was, and then they, they called it that, and uh, he was given credit for that. He ultimately, when they got over there, he was moved over there, and he became the uh, uh, deputy uh, commander of the division. And then he took over the division later into the war. But Grandad uh, <clears throat> was part of that. He, one of his, he was actually... Uh, drafted but right out of the gate and he ended up going and uh, right after uh, they put the division over there he was one of the initial companies to come in and augment it more they got it over there and they kept building it up and he was pulled into that one and he served in uh, the whole time over there he didn't get wounded but he certainly I guess saw his share uh, he was in the first one which was a big battle the Americans fought in uh, the second battle of the Marne uh, they were under, uh, I think it was the British control. They had their own command structure, but the, the, the commander over the American portion uh, reported to a French general, and they were part of the, I think it was French or British, I'm not, whichever sector at that point, and they fought under them, but as a unit. And then later they were in the Battle of St. Malo, and that's where Patton uh, got wounded. He was a tank commander at that time. And I embedded that in the story a little bit, that, which is a true story, except my main character in my book, he leads a squad to save him. And, of course, he didn't do it in real life, but in, in the book this, this happens. And then the last major battle was, was the Moose Argonne, and that was the largest battle of the war, and it was the last one in the war. And the Americans uh, were charged with uh, t uh, 25-mile uh, front lines uh, into the Moose Argonne, and it was the last, turned out to be the last major battle. And, they were, and the, the French was on one side and the British were on the other side. And the idea was for all of them to just push them, the Germans all the way out of France and Belgium back into their own country. In this battle, uh, the first army, uh, which had already been there, was augmented by the second army, American army. So there was two American armies. There had been almost 4 million men over there, but for this battle, they brought over a million men, Americans, to be in the battle. And, and it kicked off, uh, let's see, I think it was late September, and uh, they were fighting all the way up to Armistice Day, November 11th, uh, 1918, and that ended the war, and the battle ceased at that point. 
Uh, and Granddad was involved in that one. And that was the bloodiest uh, battle for the Americans. And it came at the end of the war. And they end up making uh, a, a cemetery there, the Moose Argonne. And there's like over 14,000 Americans buried there that was in that battle. And during the battle, they had to supposedly bury these men every, within a couple of days of being killed if they found their bodies. And they were buried and scattered all over the battlefield. Uh, and as the, uh, when the war ended and they designated this, this area as being the cemetery, they would go around and bring the fellows that were in these other augmented uh, temporary uh, cemeteries and bring them in and give them a proper burial in, in the cemetery. Uh, it's on the back of my book, actually, picture of it. Beautiful. I've not been there, but I've, uh, <clears throat> some people have, and I've talked to them, and I've seen pictures. But it houses almost 14,000 Americans killed during that battle. So he, he ended up in that one, and then he had to stay over there for a good while because a lot of people don't realize that they kept America, a large American force went into G Germany to help, uh, well, see that the armistice was set up and the Germans are complying with all the different things that they uh, imposed on the Germans after they lost the war. And uh, he was over there for a while. And, and uh, when he comes back home, uh, he picks up, tries to pick up with his life, and um, he, he comes back to Louisville, Ohio. He was in Wellsville, Ohio, which is on the Ohio River there, and he worked in a, uh, before the war, he worked in a pottery factory. But when he came back, uh, his job had already been filled, and, and a, lot, a lot of people don't realize that when the war ended, uh, <clears throat> these fellows, four million of them, were brought back at some point. The initial troops to come back got all the parades, you know, the New York parade and some of the others. So there was a lot of uh, pride in the country and parades and, you know, paying them a lot of attention. And that went on for a while, but then it kind of just dwindled off and it was, okay, the war's behind us, everybody's getting on with their lives. When Granddad came back, they didn't get any parades. They just brought the units back, took them into New York and said, you're out of the service, here's your check and go home. So uh, not that he was looking for a parade, he just wanted to go home, I'm sure. But he came home and he picked up with his life. And he ended up going to Louisville. He couldn't find a job in Wellsville. And he had a buddy that worked in the steel mill. And he said, you ought to look in the steel business. So granddad looked into that. And he ended up going into the steel, uh, working in the steel companies there on, in a, uh, in, outside of Canton, between Canton and Louisville. And he worked there until he retired at 55. And he worked his way up. And uh, he met my grandmother, who was French. And uh, a lot of people think, did he meet him over in, in uh, France? Well, no, but he, he certainly knew some French ladies over there. But no, he, <laughs> 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 And when the war ended, he would, he would talk about some of the French food. He loved the French food. He got, you know, some of what in Paris there. He'd get to go into Paris occasionally. So anyway, we ended up marrying uh, Grandma, and uh, she was French. And uh, they settled down there in, in Louisville. And, uh, they had two children, my dad, and uh, they had a daughter, uh, my aunt, and uh, they made a life there. He had it rough, though, uh, a little bit. Early days, he had to work his way up, and uh, uh, it seemed like a lot of guys from hearing him talk, because I think most of those fellows that were in that Saturday night poker game worked at the mill, steel mill, in some capacity. A lot of these fellows had a hard time finding jobs when they came back, and uh, they weren't mistreated or anything. They were just kind of, well, welcome back and, you know, go about your life. We didn't have a VA. Uh, we didn't have any special benefits for them. And these guys had come back, these men, and, uh, you know, some of the trench warfare I was talking about earlier, being gassed, uh, uh, being, someone being hurt from uh, being shot or, or shrapnel from various uh, motors or, or, or artillery rounds. And then, of course, on top of that, the lousy diet, they all had some, well, most, if not all, had some form of uh, health issues with their digestive system and, and their respiratory system. Mm -hmm. My own granddad had both. 
I remember over his whole life, he it got a little worse as he got older, but he always dealt with it, never complained about it. But they didn't have anywhere to go when they came back. They just had to suck it up and deal with it. They didn't have uh, any any uh, place they could turn to other than a family doctor or a local doctor. But they didn't know what to do. They had no idea all these men come back with all these horrific wounds and what do you do for gas if it got down into their bronchial tube and their lungs? How do you treat that? How do they deal with that? And some of the parasites and things that they could pick up from being over there. Uh, so they had a uh, they had a big adjustment and had to kind of huff it on their own. And they formed their own little groups, you know, the VFW and the American Legion. I, I think they had their roots as part of that war where these guys were coming together trying to work, you know, help each other, so to speak. Uh, he participated in, uh, well, he didn't participate in the, uh, what we called the bonus army march. Uh, it's in my book. Uh, back to they had trouble here, you know, getting getting settled. Granted, I got settled okay in Louisville, worked there, and I became one of the uh, men in the community that was well-respected and go-to for help and, and so on, because he was a big guy, and uh, just uh, in his position in the mill once he got high enough in the mill. Uh, so he, he did well, but he, the uh, Great Depression hit, and that was rough on everybody. And it seemed like the veterans in general, to hear him talk back then, they tended to get hit a little harder because they had a hard time finding jobs and they had a hard time keeping them. A lot of them had issues that they just couldn't, you know, they had uh, shell shock, for instance. We call it PTSD. Nobody wanted to pay any attention to that. But can you imagine fighting in the trenches and going through the combat they went through? If you read my book, you'll see it can be pretty horrific. Uh, and then having to try and adjust back to a normal life, I mean, it just doesn't happen. So a lot of these guys had issues that was hard for them to work in a, in a constant situation where there wasn't all this action around them or wasn't people that understood them. So they would have a harder time in general keeping a job is what I'm trying to say. And when the Great Depression hit, a lot of them were the first ones to lose their jobs. So uh, back when the war ended, and that was uh, in 1918, Congress passed a... Uh, I wouldn't call it a law, but they passed an act that they called the bonus, uh, World War I bonuses. And they were going to pay all the World War I uh, veterans, about four million of them, a bonus for serving. It'd be based on a lot of criteria. Their years in the service, wounds, campaigns, medals, so on. But they said they wouldn't pay them this until 1945. Now, this is 1919, 1945. I mean, how many of these fellows are still going to be alive to start with? Well, they, um, when the Great Depression hit and they were struggling, there was a group of veterans that said, well, we want Congress to pay us our bonus so we can have a little money to help us out. So they started a campaign in 1931 to get Congress to give them their bonuses. And they weren't getting anywhere. And this campaign picked up and it became known as the Bonus Army. And it grew across the country. And to make their point, a lot of them found their way to Washington, D.C. in 32, in the spring of 1932. I think it was spring. It was early spring or early summer. And there was about 12,000 of them that had converged eventually on uh, Washington. And they formed these big encampments at different parts around Washington. And some of them brought their families. And they sent up, uh, just like military, they just kind of organized themselves. And they had mess halls. They had first aid stations. And they had shanty uh, shacks they slept in. And... They would go out and, uh, as groups and talk to their representatives trying to get the congressmen to get off the dime and, and go ahead and prove this and pay them. And they got pretty close with a couple of them, but it didn't, didn't go anywhere. And so President, uh, I think it was Wilson at the time, he said, I want them out of Washington. They're paying. Get them out of here. 
So he charged MacArthur, who was the head of the military at that time, to clear him out of Washington, D.C. He called on Patton to bring in his cavalry and some other units. And on one day, they started in the morning, and they literally pushed, went all the way through these encampments, running them out, uh, all of them. And went on well into the night, and at some point, some fire started and ended up burning down a lot of the shantytown. And it was just a disgraceful uh, period there, one day where these men were treated like that. And it was military men that were charged with moving them out. They even <clears throat> brought in five of the old tanks to roll down the street. And on some key points, they set up machine guns. And the most feared weapon in World War I was a machine gun. I mean, here's, think about that. You served in the trenches, and here you are in your own country, and you want your Congress to pay you what you do. And then you got your army guys, your more current army, and they're setting up machine gun positions in certain parts. Not that they would use them, but it was just an intimidating factor. And they didn't use the tanks. It was just intimidation. But they did use gas, tear gas. They clubbed them. Uh, the, Patton had to line up his cavalry on horses and move them, flush them through town. And uh, the, the, some of the veterans started fighting back, throwing rocks and things like that. So there was, there was brawls at different points, and a lot of veterans got pretty beat up. Some of the military guys and a lot of police got beat up, too. They sent the police in first the day before, and that didn't go well. So that's when, <laughs> that's when they brought in the Army. <laughs> uh. So I tried, to ca I tried to do the best I could to capture that in my book. So and I never heard of the Bonus Army before, but when I researched that, I thought, I can't leave this out of the book. This is, this is interesting. It's so funny, though, that that part of history is not even understood. I'd never heard that story I've before. I've never once even heard about the bonus yeah. army. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Go, you, you can go online and pull it up and you'll see actual video. There's it's, it's uh, where you got MacArthur standing there with his hands, like, you know, his famous pose and back away from him is uh, major Eisenhower, who was his aide. And then you'll see Patton on his, some of his horsemen moving forward and all this gas and stuff. Uh, running the, running the guys out of that section where the video was being shot, so yeah, it's it's pretty uh, pretty interesting period. Now uh, your your father then went on um, <laughs> from that, and he ended up joining. Uh, we talked about it earlier into World War II. So um, was he on the ground as an infantryman at that time frame, or wanted to be a pilot, and uh, he just couldn't get past the eye requirement. So they ended up training him uh, as, a, as an engineer and uh, aircraft uh, maintenance and operations and uh, bombers and stuff like that. He ended up going over towards the end of 42, signed to the 8th Air Force in England. And uh, he was in charge of uh, maintenance units on these uh, bomber bases. And his, as a second lieutenant, went to first lieutenant and then got captain real quick. He, he, he was a fast start. And he came to the attention of, uh, well, at that time he was a Colonel LeMay, Curtis LeMay. LeMay had flown into one of the bases Dad was in charge of all the maintenance going on, and a big base, bombers, fighters, and transports. And he was over the whole thing as a captain at that time. <laughs> LeMay was impressed with how efficient uh, his guys were in getting these aircraft turned around, and particularly his. He'd, he had a problem with the plane he was flying in, and they sat down to get it fixed so he could go where he was going next. And he wanted to know who was in charge of all that, and he ended up meeting Dad, and that started a relationship that went all through my dad's career at touch points. Uh, anyway, he, he war ends, and um, gets he comes home, uh, Dad, 
and he uh, gets out and uh, he ties his hand at civilian life. He was a cab driver. He worked at a, some company for a while, and then some of his buddies were forming a big trucking company, which was they wanted dad to come because he was really good at organizing and all that kind of stuff and some engineering background. And he chose not to do that. And then sometimes he reminded to me, you know, I probably should have done that because that company took off in five years and those guys were all, you know, really wealthy because trucking really kicked in after the war from all the convoys they used in World War II from the, or both, both uh, Pacific and the, uh, and the uh, Europe. So anyway, he uh, was doing that and gets close to, he was out about three years and the Korean War comes along and they called him back in. Uh, during the Korean War, they had uh, bombers B-29 stationed in Okinawa and Japan. And I embedded in my book uh, uh, in the Korean portion about a typhoon that blows through the base there and how critical it was to, you know, the weather and how, I tried to draw that in a little bit. Uh, my main character in that book is a pilot, but loosely based on my dad's career other than being in the cockpit. But he never talked about his experiences, but growing up on air bases and, and he was always entertaining because the, the, the officers would do that. I met a lot of fighter pilots and bomber pilots as I was a young boy and then a teenager and then in college and post-college. And I'd hear their stories and, and share some of them, particularly when I came back from Vietnam. Uh, the World War II generation does a, uh, their groups, they just were tight their whole lives just and they would have these big group reunions and and, and guys would get together and do things uh, which I think was therapeutic to some extent for them as they particularly as they grew older so I met a lot of those fellows over the years and, and heard some of their stories which helped me to write this book that'll be coming out the air warrior uh, so that was kind of his experiences so in all of these experiences, whether it was your yourself, your brothers, your father, um, your grandfather, since this is right around, you know, Veterans Day, um, you mentioned about the struggles that your grandfather had in returning back. Um, how would you then um, share, you know, the experiences that say your father and then how that might have even differed from say yourself uh when you came back and and i and i want to kind of talk about that you know quickly and then before we wrap up i certainly want to get to your books and and talking about the titles of those and where we can find those so you know what what was the experiences and how do they differ between each that's a good question my my one of the purposes of my trilogy is to try and bring all that out a little bit because each war was a little different and had its own uniqueness and so on um World War One, as I as I alluded to earlier, I think those guys coming back had a rough time. I mean, they just didn't have the support mechanisms or the understanding, but they dealt with it and they moved on. Uh, when World War Two uh, happened and post World War Two, and I bring this up in my new book, uh, that the the senior echelon of the military said, "Look, we've got to do a better job with our veterans when this war ends to bring them back." help them assimilate back into the population and get on with their lives. We didn't do a very good job at World War I. So they came up with uh, the medical facilities. VA was spawned post-World War I, uh, World War II. Uh, they had the college education assistance program. I had an uncle who landed on uh, Normandy Beach uh, on the uh, third wave on D-Day. 
made it through that day, uh, fourth day into the battle, what was left of his company, he was sent back with what was left of his platoon to fill up the canteens. There's like 75 canteens, so 220 guys down to 75. And while they were back off the line, they were hit by a heavy German mortar attack. And Grand, I mean, my Uncle Richard was hit pretty severely and all, and he was laid up for about a year, almost lost his arm. And I say that to say this, when he came back and, and finally got back into his uh, civilian mode, he went back to college and then with the college assistants from the government, ended up getting a degree in chemistry and then went on to work for a major chemical company in Ohio and did very well. Still had his demons and his issues, but if it wasn't for the government, he might not have been able to do that. So that was a benefit. Housing, they came up with the VA loan program and they had other... They even had a one-year, when they came back, gave them a one-year monthly check, all the veterans, to help them till they could assimilate back. So there was a lot of stuff done for them uh, to help them kind of move back into the civilian population. But that still didn't, uh, you know, these sellers still had a lot of uh, issues with their combat experiences. Uh, and uh, they had to deal with that. I don't know that the VA had a lot of, uh, or the military had a lot of, help for them. I never really heard much about that. For their, uh, they called it, uh, the flyers called it uh, flack happy, uh, PTSD. And mm -hmm. uh, my, I don't think dad really saw any. He saw some action, but I don't think he saw much. He seemed to handle it whatever his memories were because he never shared them with me. He never talked about himself. I, I learned about, about him from all his other buddies. And a lot of the stories I embedded in my current book about behavior is based on all these men that I met. Or Dad would tell me about a lot of his friends and the, some of their experiences over the years because we spent a lot of time together talking uh, for many years there before he passed away. But I don't think he had a, a real rough time adjusting. He loved the military, and when he got out, he just, he, did, he really didn't want to get out, but he, he did, and he, adjusting in the civilian side. He, he never quite did that. He retired in Panama City next to Tyndall, and he was real big in the community with veterans and helped. So he, that life just was part of him until he died. Uh, as far as the, the, the men in general, I think they did a pretty good job. As a, you know, there's 16 million men that served in World War II. Four million in World War One, uh, you know, was able to get back in. Not all of them. It depended on their obviously their experiences and everything. Much different from say your brother and yourself and yeah. yeah. Korea, that this is funny. To get along with to come along with the same uh, concept here or, or idea. Dad was in Korea um, for almost two years, and uh, when he came back. You know, we spent about a month, I guess, in Louisville for him to uh, have, he had time off before he went to our next duty station, wherever that was. And he was walking down, we'd walk downtown with him, get a chocolate Coke, or he loved chocolate Cokes, I like vanilla Cokes, but, and he would bump into buddies he went to high school with there, because he grew up there, and, and uh, he was, he knew everybody in town, they knew him. And he would bump into these guys all the time, and they say, hey, Sam, where you been? I haven't seen you in two years. And, <laughs> He would always get so upset. He said, I think one time I was with him and he, he didn't blow up. He was always real calm, but he said, you ever hear a place called Korea? I mean, that summarizes Korea. They call it the forgotten war. I mean, if you weren't in the war, you didn't have mm -hmm. a family member. Everybody else just went on with their life. He went, well, that, that's not my problem. I don't know anything really about it. That was a horrendous war. I had no idea what the B-29 pilots experienced uh, until I wrote this book and embedded that part in the book. 
So uh, I think Korea was a little, uh, it was a little rough on those fellows that did go because I, I have known some Korean War veterans, and they're they're pretty sensitive about about that, and they have a right to be. Uh, then you fast forward to uh, Vietnam. Well, a lot of people know about that. Thirteen years and uh, long war, and uh, it, was a, it was a costly war, and it certainly did a lot of damage to our psychic, if you national psychic, uh, the military, particularly the army, took a beating there coming out of the war. Uh, that spawned uh, do away with the draft, form the modern volunteer army, and move forward with that. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, but. Uh, I can only speak for myself. I, five years in, when I came back, it was a, it was a rude awakening to some extent. You heard about it, you know, you knew it. It was uh, what was going on, but yeah, it was still kind of uh, kind of rough. The adjustment there uh, didn't want any. I just wanted to go home, but I didn't expect to be treated the way I'd been treated in some of the, when I was wearing my uniform. Uh, when we landed, when we left Vietnam, flew out of. Uh, I'll digress a minute. Flew out of Da Nang, flew into Japan, Tokyo. And got it was a lot of the airplane to stretch and, and while well, they cleaned it and refueled it and wandered around the terminal immediate area and every Japanese person which well, of course we were in Tokyo was very kind and uh, you know went out of the way to be kind to us because we were all in uniform and uh, we had a lot of conversations uh, and so on pleasant experience we come back uh, we land in Washington at the military base there and uh, then we process out some guys were going out getting out being released Others, like myself, are going to be reassigned. And the next morning, uh, those of us that were going to Atlanta were taken by a bus out to the uh, Washington-Tacoma airport there. And once we got off that bus and, and started walking around, and uh, this was in December the 23rd, 1971, uh, I don't, not one person said, hi, welcome back. Most people ignored us. Some people snarled at us. And the young people particularly would, would th- uh, make comments. And he just, he said, oh, my God, we'd heard about all that. Uh, and uh, I just I want to get home and get out of my uniform. This is ridiculous. Uh, so we, we were subjected to that. I flew into Atlanta and then caught a plane down to Panama City to go back to my, uh, meet my wife. And I was gone a year. And when I came back, I had a three-month-old daughter. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, then uh, a year and a half at Benning, got out and uh, went into banking. Another quick story to show how some of the way we were treated, if you will. Uh, when I, I when I came back, I was assigned to the general staff at Fort Benning. I was one of his aides, uh, top general there. And when I decided to get out, uh, he and another full colonel that I reported directly to took it upon themselves to contact uh, community leaders, uh, bank presidents, and some others, saying, "I got this guy getting out. He blah 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 blah. He, you know, he, he wants to try and get a job." I think in banking. So make a long story short, they lined me up with about 12 different companies, all the banks in the region, four of them, and then several companies to meet with the presidents or the CEOs. And I ended up getting offers from almost all of them. Ultimately, went with Trust Company out of Atlanta. But one of my interviews was with a local bank there. <clears throat> and I went in. I never wore my uniform. I was in civilian clothes. I went in and the uh, to go up to see the HR director, Came up, went up there and uh, the, the, the assistant sent me in eventually. He was sitting behind his desk and he was uh, drinking coffee and reading something. Didn't even acknowledge me walking in. Didn't offer me a seat. Finally, he looks up and he, he says, You're, I said, I'm Larry Freeland here to, for an interview and blah, blah. And he says, oh, well, yeah. He says, I just want you to know I'm just doing this because the president told me to do this. 
And I thought to myself, well, this is going to be a good interview. <laughs> so, so then uh, he says, well, uh, Larry, uh, tell me what you can do other than fly helicopters, shoot guns, and kill people. And well, that threw me back, and that's a quote. And I, you know, it took a little bit to keep me from pouncing over his desk and, yeah. you know, knew what. And so I just basically leaned over his desk, and I don't remember exactly how I put it, but I was mad, and I told him so. And I said, you know, I wouldn't come to work for here for all the money in the world, and I don't see how a guy with your attitude got a job like this in a bank, a community bank, in a military town. I said, I'm going to go down and see your president. And that scared him. And I just walked out of his office, went down, and I ended up talking to the president, told him what happened. That night I get a call from the guy, and he's just bawling, wanting to apologize. I just told him to go to hell and hung up. He was, I think he was fired. I knew he was fired within about a week. Somebody got back to me. But that, you would run into that. And I wasn't the Lone Ranger. I had other instances similar to that, but that was probably the worst. But a lot of us just ran into that. Uh, well, my brother Tom Navy, he got out. He started his own business as a consultant with the Navy. And my younger brother, he bounced around doing everything. So I think after uh, when this my own opinion, as we moved into the end of the 80s and Reagan came on board, he poured a lot of money and energy and, and so on back into the military. And I think he helped rejuvenate it, particularly at the end of his first term. I mean, he, he had uh, increased the size of the military, increased their weaponry and, and all these things. And there was a sense of pride that was being rebuilt in the military. And then, of course, we, uh, Bush gets in and we go into the first Gulf War and everybody knows what happened there. And I think it really brought the military's uh, appreciation for him in general up much higher, helped with recruiting, drove a lot of good people in. and So I, I think they were treated generally better, but it's still rough on a veteran. No matter what war, what you do, you've still got to transition from military to civilian when you do get out or, and move on with your life. And uh, it's always a, a challenge. You've got two books sitting there, and I want to make sure that we at least highlight those books. Um, and you said you've got another one coming out, but can you pick up your books and, um, you know, maybe within camera shot there, um, give us an opportunity to see. Um, so the first one is Chairs in the Sky, so you should be able to see that now in front of you. And that's the book that you were describing that's more about your stories um, and those that you served with and everything. You were, although you were a Chinook pilot, this is more about a Huey pilot during Vietnam. It's a fantastic read. Um, I've read that thing cover to cover and really enjoyed that story. And then now you've got the Legacy. So hold that up. Now you got Legacy of Honor. And Legacy of Honor is your grandfather's with World War One, And this is going to then transition into Korea. And then you've got your um, next book, which is, is still the Legacy of Honor. Legacy of yeah. Honor, the Air Warrior. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and so in in that one, um, we'll we'll also make sure that uh, we demonstrate that. So hold those books back up again, Larry. I just want to make sure. Both of them. Yeah. So in each of the books, we've got the chariots in the sky, then legacy of honor, and um, you can see the, the chariots in the sky is again 
the book about himself and uh, when he was a Chinook pilot and then a Huey pilot and then the other one is Legacy of Honor which covers his grandfather and then you've got the next one that's coming out so um, Larry we, we really appreciate you coming on the, uh, the show sharing once again the deep history of what you've studied and um, the experiences that your grandfather um, and yourself you know what you put within the book but more importantly in this conversation around um, understanding that veterans and what some of them may be experiencing today and why it's so important to recognize each of these veterans through these different stories there's struggles that happen each time and there's a lot of similarities and so um, I think you know at least what you covered here in this show is how those similarities the names may have changed what post-traumatic stress was but it's always been there and um, it's something obviously that we need to, to be cognizant of and aware of but more importantly the brutality in, of war and what war really is and um, what you've shared in your books through each of those generations of your personal family um, and their extended friends and everything and so I really appreciate that I really appreciate you coming on and um, once again just uh, sharing that knowledge and information well I appreciate that and I'm really glad to be here today and talk with you again I've enjoyed it and I hope uh, people will be able to draw a little bit from some of that and if they read the books you know get a better appreciation for what veterans and their families go through and have have done to create the environment the country we live in uh, it, it's uh, not easy to maintain that and it takes good people to take care of it and i think military life uh, is not for everybody but it's important and uh, people should appreciate what the men and women who serve do and those who have served done so uh, that's all i can say about that <laughs>